Before we start the show this week, we have a really exciting announcement. Yeah. Talking Machines is uh, going to be raising money for our second season. We've really enjoyed doing the first season of the show, and we want to keep bringing it to you, but we really need your help to do that. Yeah, it's been such a blast, and we'd love to really be able to keep doing this and interview lots more great people and so on. Yeah, so we've uh, started a Kickstarter, and we'll have a link to that on our website, which you can find, and we will make sure that you see in all the different places and ways that you could see it. But we're going to use the money to go to NIPS and try to go to ICML and... Uh, go out to the West Coast and New York and do some more interviews and really bring you more insightful conversations with the great researchers that you've come to expect from us. Also, you were talking about the idea of taking the kind of talking machines idea for science journalism and taking it to other fields as well. Yes. So if we're successful with this Kickstarter, one thing that we're going to do or that I'm going to do is create a uh, podcast production company around this idea. And if we can reach our full goal on Kickstarter, we're going to be able to start production for our second show, our second original production, which I can't tell you much about right now, but it's going to have something to do with the life sciences. So awesome. get excited. That's super cool. <laughs> You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, today you're going to introduce us to the idea of active learning. Yeah, active learning is one of the ideas floating around in machine learning that is about trying to figure out how to use lots of unlabeled data to get good at supervised learning problems. So this situation arises really all the time in a lot of different areas. And basically it boils down to the fact that often we have tons and tons and tons of unlabeled data and then only a few sort of really good um, sort of high quality human labels. That is only a relatively small subset. The most common example where you see this is something like images, where out of the web you have billions and billions of images, but we have very few high quality human labels of what's in the image or where things are in those images. We also have lots of text out there and we know very little though maybe about what, you know, the what the sentiment of the text is. Is this saying something positive or negative or what's the fact associated with it or which parts of the, of the uh, sentence are the noun and the verb and so on. So this is something that comes up quite a lot where we have tons and tons of data and relatively little human, uh, relatively few sort of human labels, but we think that somehow the sort of distribution of the unlabeled data is interesting and informative. So uh, there's a bunch of ideas out there on how to get better at supervised learning problems by taking advantage of those unlabeled data. One example is something called semi-supervised learning, where it's sort of, you know, not quite supervised learning. You're learning something maybe about the density of the um, of the the data and having that inform the labels. There's also the idea of unsupervised pre-training that we saw kind of a few years ago in the deep learning community. And then also there's uh, this idea of active learning, which is a kind of an interesting and different twist. Basically, the idea is that we have some process by which we can collect labels. So let's imagine we have a room full of people who can label data at some rate. Maybe we use Mechanical Turk or something. And so what we can do is, in addition to training a machine learning algorithm, either on the unsupervised or the supervised data, we can also ask people for more labels. Hmm. Now, maybe this is like an, an experimental design type thing. So you can imagine... Um, you know, that we have a new molecule and we think this molecule is interesting and we can run some very expensive experiments on it. Now, we don't want to run the, those experiments on a lot of different things. Um, and so we want to carefully choose which ones we're going to run to inform some classifier or regressor or whatever it is. So it won't surprise you that this relates a lot to ideas like optimal experimental design and, um, and Bayesian optimization and other kinds of model-based sort of predictive procedures. Um, but active learning in particular is trying to understand which unlabeled data would be most valuable if they had labels. And it turns out to be a really hard problem because a lot of the kind of heuristics 
that you would imagine using, like you know, which unlabeled examples would the algorithm be most uncertain about, or uh, different things like that, turn out to have some kind of um, some theoretical challenges. But it's so it's it's a very active area of research, no pun intended. But the uh, <laughs> so it's really unclear exactly what the right way to do uh, to do this is, and yet uh, it's something that has a tremendous number of applications. So. A lot of bespoke problems in different industrial settings require a lot of labeled data. And so, of course, you'd like to use your labeling resources as well as you can. Um, and it's also an area where probabilistic methods have something interesting to say because we can, we can frame some ideas related to this in terms of gathering information about labels and so on. That sounds really fascinating. It sounds like a really interesting area to watch. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely an area to keep an eye on. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting developments over the next couple of years. It interfaces with many other areas of machine learning. And again, I, I think the, the applications of it are really, uh, are really diverse. So we'll have some links to papers on active learning on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about evolutionary algorithms. Hello, my name is John Cusack. I'm a business analyst at Ignite Technologies. My question is about neat or neural evolution of augmenting topologies. It seems to have a lot of theoretical applications, but I only know of a handful of existing applications. What needs to happen to have neat applications design more complex tools? Is it more accurate simulations, more raw computing power, more intelligent fitness scoring, or is it a higher level of intelligence somehow built into the algorithms? So, you know, evolutionary algorithms are incredibly appealing ideas. They really sort of get at something that uh, is almost primal in a certain way because we look around us and we see, you know, we see the most complex objects that we know of, you know, that is, that is living organisms were designed by evolution. And it's really amazing, you know, that, that this kind of random search procedure could produce such fantastic results that, you know, science still doesn't even really, really understand. However, one thing I think sort of we forget is that evolution had the advantage of sort of geologic timescale to do this search. And there's like, I think an interesting sort of lack of imagination about both the uh, research into computational evolution that is in some ways sort of matched against people who believe in intelligent design. That is, a, there's a, you know, a community of people who reject the idea that randomness can design things. And then there's also this kind of um, evolutionary algorithms community that rejects the idea that they need an extraordinarily long time. And in both cases, there's this issue, which is that it's very hard for humans to think about millions and millions and millions of years. That in both cases, you really need to, you, you just really can't even reason about how long it takes to solve a problem in the way that, um, the way that, that evolution appears to solve it naturally. Um, and that it is both possible at that time scale to evolve amazing organisms and also probably not very possible to evolve them uh, on your computer. Um, and I think this is reflected by the fact that there really aren't any successes that I think we can readily identify for uh, evolutionary algorithms in the machine learning literature. In fact, if you go to ICML or you go to, um, you know, you go to NEPS, you're very unlikely to find a serious paper on um, that uses evolutionary algorithms. And I think my, my PhD supervisor put it best, which is that if you have the choice between optimizing using intelligent decisions about where to go and using random decisions about where to go, you'd always rather make intelligent decisions. This is why I think sort of 
evolutionary type approaches to things like neural networks that are very high dimensional optimization problems that sort of throw away information about gradients and curvature and geometry and all of the structure that we know that exists, you know, you, <laughs> basically, you know, random choices are always going to lose to stuff like that. And then we're also seeing that even outside of things where you have gradients, that uh, ideas that take advantage of, of sort of explicit modeling and knowledge of the, of the structure of the problem are going to do better. In some ways, what it boils down to is how valuable is some kind of meta reasoning going to be? So you're going to perform an optimization, you're going to perform some kind of search, and you're going to need to make decisions about what to try. And the question is, in what situation is it the case that um, you want to essentially spend zero effort deciding what to try next? Because that's kind of what evolution is doing. It's sort of just applying random perturbations to the existing, uh, you know, to, to sort of your existing population. Now I realize there's some adaptation of those things, but in general, the whole point is that it's random and you don't do any, any sort of interesting and explicit decision making around that. And the only situation in which that's ever going to make sense is when the evaluation of a particular point in that space is almost totally free. That is that it's so cheap that the perturbation, the search itself, um, needs to be incredibly cheap in order for it to be for it to be competitive. That there's essentially no value in making intelligent decisions. And guess what? Things that live a couple of years have that property against billions of years of geologic timescale. You have this kind of situation where most of the problems, machine learning problems that we want to solve, uh, do require actually considering the next thing we're going to look at in our search space. That's not really the case at sort of geologic timescales. So, I uh, so I'm very pessimistic about these things, even though they really are sort of like they kind of tickle your mind in an interesting way. And it when wouldn't it be fun um, to sort of be able to evolve intelligent things in the way that nature has evolved intelligent things? I find myself feeling like if I have the choice between, you know, making random decisions or good decisions, I'd rather make good decisions. And that's kind of, uh, I think, why we don't see evolutionary algorithms solving interesting problems in the machine learning literature. So unless you have literally all the time in the world, you need to be able to bring more information to bear than these kind of algorithms allow you to do. Exactly. And moreover, that information is almost always available, so you might as well use it. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Sham Cockaday of Microsoft Research New England. Um, and he is a really fascinating person to talk to. He's been in academia for a long time. Now he's moved into industry. And in the fall, he's going to be moving back to the University of Washington. That's right. And he has such a great perspective uh, across many different areas, not just of machine learning, but also of neuroscience. The first question we asked Sham is the same question we ask everyone first. How did you get where you are? My academic journey has been pretty varied. So I think it reasonably... Uh, probably around high school, I got pretty interested in theoretical physics, and uh, and then I went to Caltech in the hopes of studying that. And near to my senior year, I took a very inspirational course by John Hopfield uh, on computational neuroscience. That's my academic grandfather. Oh, wow, awesome. Uh, so John Hopfield is, you know, he's very inspiring. He is a physicist uh, in training, but was one of the early people in the connectionist movement, and he really took uh, 
a physics style perspective on modeling uh, not only kind of neuroscience, but the world in general. And he had a very uh, well thought out course. Uh, and it really made me rethink decisions to go into physics. Partly, there were a lot of new and exciting questions. As an undergrad, I was thinking about quantum computing a bit. And uh, it was an exciting area. But after John's course, I decided to uh, switch to neuroscience. And then, uh, and they had two very influential TAs. So Sam Rorys was a TA at the time, and Eric Winfrey uh, was a TA. And Eric Winfrey is now doing, I think, some of this DNA computing. And then I decided to switch, actually, into neuroscience. So going to graduate school, I decided to go to the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit. Uh, it was just getting started at the time. So Jeff Hinton had a big grant from Britain to start this neuroscience unit, and it was meant to be this group at the intersection of understanding how the brain works and computational models of it. And uh, so I started, there was a lot of exciting postdocs that came. Peter Diane was my advisor. And you know, when I started, I was actually pretty seriously interested in being a real neuroscience, a real neuroscientist. And near the end of my PhD, I decided to move more into uh, machine learning and more mathematical questions in machine learning. And then since then, uh, I was a postdoc at Penn, worked with Michael Kearns more in computational game theory, and meandered around a bit in different areas. Uh, but it's interesting to see things coming together again, because uh, while uh, you know, Jeff Hinton went back to the University of Toronto, but neural networks are all the rage again, and it was interesting to see take two again. And and you were at the Gatsby in a really sort of a golden era, right? So I mean, I mean, the founding had saw a bunch of really interesting and strong people kind of move through there as as grad students and postdocs. Yeah, it was it was very exciting because uh, a lot of work in like variational Bayes, Bayesian methods was starting around, becoming very popular around the time. So Zubin was there. Uh, the postdocs uh, there were really, uh, I mean, they're fantastic now. Then it was a level of excitement because it was a lot of uh, people in machine learning and algorithms there, along with computational neuroscientists. Uh, it was, yeah, it was really a fun time. So I feel like some of your, your recent work has been sort of had, had kind of like a theoretical computer science type flavor almost. Is that, is that fair? Uh, uh, yeah. Yes, like a lot of it has, but in a sense, um, it has a theoretical computer science viewpoint, but in a sense also a very classical statistics viewpoint. So in the last maybe decade to decade and a half, theoretical computer science has started realizing many of the questions in statistics and machine learning are very relevant. And they're asking, you know, essentially questions statisticians have been asking for the last 100 years, how do we get good estimators for uh, relevant problems? And how do we get good estimators in an efficient manner? And the aspects I've been, the questions I've been asking are how do we do this in a computationally efficient manner? Uh, but in a sense, you could argue this is a 100 years old question phrased by Pearson, who was as asking, how do we come up with efficient estimators uh, when you didn't have computers around? And uh, he was still saying, how do we, essentially asking the same question of how do we compute estimators? So uh, it is interesting that computer scientists are asking these questions, but they are, I would say, fundamentally basic questions in statistics as well. Yeah, I mean, some of your you know exciting recent work has has kind of been 
I won't call it a rediscovery, but a, a kind of like a revisiting of like the generalized method of moments and, and things like that. How has this work been viewed by the, like the statisticians when you, when you talk to them about this? So this is an interesting question. So in, in a sense, the method of moments is their cup of tea. And it's interesting that maybe up till around the 60s, uh, there was a viewpoint that if we could use the method of moments, we could get fast estimators. And around the time computers became popular, EM started to be used pretty heavily. And now statisticians are returning to this question. And there's a lot of interest among statisticians uh, in actually getting ef efficient estimators. So it's definitely a different viewpoint for them. Uh, but they are looking pretty positively on this line of work. And more generally, I think everyone's trying to figure out how do we actually get good estimators in practice. And the jury is out, but I think there's a lot of excitement in uh, seeing that at least in some reasonable settings, we shouldn't view these problems as computationally difficult. So I think that aspect is uh, being viewed pretty positively. And I think this is uh, a message that many people, at least in this area of work, uh, there's hope that, in fact, we should have efficient algorithms for a lot of different settings. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this is something that, that in some ways, it's I don't know really needs to be communicated to the statisticians, right? And that and that there needs to be have uh, this kind of like longer conversation that the properties of the estimator, uh, in the absence of computational considerations, are sort of you know of limited interest, right? That there's a combination of of understanding the statistical properties as well as the computational properties. Yeah, that's right, and uh, it's really an exciting you know exciting time right now for how we come up with not only good estimators, but also, say, confidence intervals for these estimators, because uh, you know, areas like computational biology, this is pretty clear. We get estimators, and the estimators are a result of some complicated algorithm we have. And we'd like to, one, know at the very least it's a reasonable estimator. But on top of that, we'd also like to get some idea of how confident we are that our estimator is good. So uh, the confidence aspect of things uh, is actually a very relevant question in modern statistics. And it's just uh, more of a communication between a bunch of different people for how to come up with the language for thinking about uh, both confidence intervals and uh, efficient estimators. So switching gears for a, a little bit, you know, you have this really remarkable long view, I think, on um, on sort of the relationship between connectionism and sort of modern, very rigorous machine learning, um, and then also and also sort of real neuroscience. You're, you know, working with Hopfield and then at the Gatsby with Peter Diane, and then and then now doing this the, this kind of uh, amazing stuff that that's very kind of I think of as being essentially you know a flavor of theoretical statistics. You've expressed maybe privately some some skepticism about some of the uh, uh, about some of the hype around deep learning. You know, you have a very informed opinion, I, I think, about this kind of stuff. It's not that you're sort of on the sidelines, uh, but more like you, you've seen this, these kind of techniques for a long time and know the people involved and, and care about a lot of the very, very same problems. Uh, but I was wondering if you'd elaborate a little bit more on, on this kind of interesting agenda you've described of trying to understand whether or not more traditional methods of like randomized uh, feature extraction and, um, and so on can, uh, can be competitive with deep learning uh, for problems like computer vision. Yes, yeah, so, so this is a this is a fantastic question, and you know I think many people are asking uh, this question because deep learning 
is really having a tremendous impact, not just in the machine learning and AI community, it's having a big impact in society. And ultimately, we don't want to just get the same results that they're getting, we'd like to solve harder problems. And you know, another way to put this question, if we're gonna solve harder problems, what are the sets of techniques we need to understand? And right now, there's a real scientific question as to uh, which methods work in practice and understanding why certain methods fail. And you know, the question you're asking, I would say is perhaps one of the simplest questions, which is suppose you have some feed-forward neural network. So a feed-forward neural network, just think of it as uh, some stacks of nonlinearities. If the way you're training the, these methods are you just start randomly and do local search, which means move in the direction to increase performance. Uh, and if these algorithms are very stable, and by stable I mean you start randomly, you run your local, local search procedure, and they always tend to find good solutions, I, I would say this is somewhat surprising from our algorithmic understanding of things because it's clearly a very non-convex surface, yet local hill climbing seems to get good answers. And if that's the case, why don't other techniques work? And a, a very natural straw man is, let's just try something stupid, which is put in a lot of polynomials. And by polynomials, I mean, let's just put a lot of nonlinear interactions into our system blindly and fit it with some method we know how to fit well, like convex optimization. And I don't know if this will work as well as these methods, but there's a very good scientific question, which is, if it doesn't work, what's different about them? Because you could argue this is also deep because the way I construct my nonlinear interactions are, in fact, deep. Like, I use like a degree five polynomial or something like that. There's many different ways to come up with nonlinearities. Like, you use decision trees. Uh, so it's, I view this as really as a scientific question. It's something I've been working on for maybe a year or two, and I think many other people in the closet are playing around with these things, and uh, I think it's really the first step. And if it does fall short, I think it opens a very interesting set of questions for uh, how we build representations, and if it does work well, uh, maybe the question is how do we come up with compact representations? Uh, but I think it's, a, it's really one of the right starting steps that we need to take scientifically. This is, I, I love the way you're framing this, which is something that I think, I think that the community actually isn't as good at as it should be, which is talking about the science, right? That there are kind of hypotheses here about how we do machine learning that is scientific hypotheses. And there are scientific questions that we can answer theoretically and empirically, and we actually don't know the answer to these, uh, to these questions right now. Yes, uh, and this is, I mean, this is wonderful because, you know, Machine learning is an area which is both theory, science, and engineering. And what's very exciting are the engineering breakthroughs that we have a representation, say, in computer vision. Uh, these convolutional neural networks are wonderful. And if we go to the, the modern computer vision conferences, by and large, the community has switched to just using these representations in downstream tasks. And from an engineering viewpoint, this is great because we found something that works and we're just using the results. But there's a scientific question, which is, why has it worked? And one of the important things of science is we'd like to rule out why other methods have failed. And part of my exploration empirically is 
try things and actually getting negative results is a positive thing because I can see why things work. And one of the difficulties of our community is we don't actually see negative results published. And I think this is very problematic. So one example, you know, which I think is being, you see this expressed by maybe theorists a little more, but maybe everyone, is that machine learning has lots of great heuristics that work. And I think this isn't, you know, this is pretty far from the truth, because I have plenty of heuristics myself that really don't work very well, and I'm sure everyone else has plenty of their own heuristics that don't work very well. What we see published, well, they tend to work. So I think there's a lot of uh, publications where, which support that a lot of local search heuristics really do work well in practice, but the problem is we actually don't see a lot of the, the negative results, and this is really biasing our viewpoint of lots of heuristics working. So how do we, I mean, th this seems like a challenging problem from a scientific perspective, though, where if, so on one hand, it's, it seems important to have negative results uh, in the literature, but negative results about heuristics don't seem necessarily that valuable, right? So if there's, unless there's sort of strong justification for a heuristic, it's easy to come up with bad ideas, right? If we don't have a sort of theoretical basis for them. So how would you sort of make a scientific case for something that in some sense seems like a good idea, should work, happens not to? How can we tell the difference between that and just a bad idea? Well, in a sense, this is the scientific process where we have new data sets and we try our ideas on these data sets. So uh, going to the distinction, going to say an engineering viewpoint, uh, this is, I think, motivates a lot of your work on Bayesian optimization can we actually release packages which on new data work out of the box? And I think this will reveal a lot. So if these things like you know, convolution, convolutional neural networks produce great representations, but we need an expert tuning it, then this might not be a technique. It means we need a bunch of smart people who design a representation themselves. But if we can actually release code that works out of the box, then uh, we might not know why it works, but at least from a hypothesis testing viewpoint, we might believe that this is going to work well on new problems. And I think this is actually uh, one way to at least, you know, it, it's probably the most minimal way we can start addressing this question. And as a community, this is sort of how we value research because we do try to come up with benchmarks and new data sets where we measure ourselves on. But it's, I agree, it's a, it's a tricky situation. Right. So revisiting something you, you said a little bit earlier, you know, you, you talked about the, um, uh, how local search methods work surprisingly well on these problems, and so therefore we might expect that we could solve them just as well with co convex optimization. I mean, uh, hopefully that's a reasonable paraphrase. Um, and uh, you're sort of grimacing like maybe, <laughs> maybe that wasn't fair. But, you know, one of the things that, that it seems like the community um, is realizing about some of these problems is that whereas maybe in the sort of mid-90s um, some of this research stalled out with the idea that um, that we were encountering local minima with our local search techniques. More recently it, it appears that the uh, these kind of high dimensional spaces often it's more like they're full of saddle points than they are uh, local minima as such. And so, as a result, waiting a long time for a sort of a hill climbing procedure will sort of still works. So, how does that, 
how do you sort of reconcile that with with convexity in this situation? I mean, uh, put another way, we like really don't. It seems like part of the challenge here is our limited understanding of how to handle non-convex functions in general. I completely agree that our understanding of non-convexity is uh, is a barrier for for making progress in this area, and you know, and and. To really make prob pr progress, not all problems are convex, so we have to address this issue. And the issue of saddle points is a very real one because I think there are deep learning researchers which are essentially arguing that saddle points might be the problem. And by saddle points, I mean um, it's a point at which uh, you're going to move toward, but it isn't actually uh, a local minima, so you're going to move toward it, and then once you get close to it, you're going to realize, well, there's actually another direction I should move uh, once I get there. And so, so the question is, how do we actually come up with algorithms that deal with saddle points in this setting? And there is a growing body of work essentially trying to get a better understanding of uh, saddle point optimization, you know, dealing with saddle points and optimization, and things like this singular value decomposition uh, are in fact one setting where uh, we do understand saddle point issues. For the case of neural networks, uh, I don't have a very good intuition. I don't think anyone has a very good intuition as to how problematic these are. But if local search is escaping them, then, or, or even if local search isn't escaping them and we're finding good answers, uh, this suggests our error surface is easier than we might have expected. And I'm not actually convinced, uh, you know, historically it's a good question as to why did we leave these methods uh, in the first place. I think part of it is the fact that other methods would work out of the box and give about as good performance. So there is something to be, this, to be said about a practitioner being able to uh, just use something that works out of the box and I think this is to some extent why we moved away from these because even in some of the early results in neural networks, their performance was comparable to things like support vector machines and so on. But I would say support vector machines arguably took off because people actually released very good code that works pretty well in practice. And I think at this point in time, there's a strong argument that there are many other convex optimization procedures which will give you about as good performance as SVMs, but the reason SVMs tend to be used a lot in practice is there's some very nice open source packages uh, which work out of the box. So, uh, so I think this actually just goes back to this earlier question, uh, which is how well do other methods work compared to neural networks? And there are recent papers essentially arguing for problems like uh, speech recognition, that kernel methods work about as well. Uh, the jury is still out because some of these data sets are not, uh, they're not public. And I think this is actually causing problems in uh, verifying things scientifically when we have a lot of good data sets that are pr proprietary. So we get published papers comparing things, but they're on private data sets. So in terms of addressing this question, for speech recognition, which is, do neural networks work about as well as, say, kernel methods? It would help if the community could have access to uh, state-of-the-art data sets. Uh, so. Yeah, well, and this also gets at something that I think is really a really important distinction that maybe not everybody appreciates. 
which is that there are in some ways two different prevailing attitudes within machine learning about what the objective is. And one sort of set of people implicitly feel like they're, what they're trying to do is produce code for the world to make methodological contributions that can be reused on many different problems. And other people identify particular challenging problems and then seek to solve those in a, in a sort of more bespoke way. And I, I feel like the, uh, you know, that is to say that getting good at, at ImageNet, as one example, seems to be something that, that people sort of treat as its own problem. And, um, and, and so then the, you know, so then what happens is, whereas maybe the SVM research you're talking about produced wonderful packages that you can expect to solve a lot of different problems, some of the sort of, at least a couple of years ago, some of the ComNet packages, for example, we would see, didn't seem like they could do much that wasn't sort of 32 by 32 images. The, uh, um, so, but it seems like you're, you're sort of very firmly on the side of we need to make tools that other people can use, and maybe this is a kind of st statistical bias. Uh, actually, no. So I think this is a great question, and I'm on both sides of the coin for this one. So to put it another way, you know, you can think of kind of bespoke machine learning, which is uh, I want to do image recognition or fine-grained image recognition. You might have a picture of a meal. You might like some recognition algorithm to automatically figure out what type of objects are on the table, what type of vegetables are on the table what type of fruits are on the table, maybe figure out the people who are sitting at the meal. This is something that has huge ep economic value to do well. And it might actually make sense for basically major corporations and startups to spend ridiculous amounts of money on uh, for talented people to develop, to develop special purpose systems for this problem. And it's quite plausible that state-of-the-art on these problems might actually involve a lot of uh, expert machine learning people doing work on. Uh, the other side of the coin might be, how do we automatically discover structure in data, which we'd like to farm out at a very large scale? So an example of this might be, say we're looking at healthcare data. Hospitals have lots and lots of healthcare data. We'd like to figure out are there reasonable correlations in the data, which is people with you know, some s sort of symptoms or diseases, do they correlate in ways that uh, to certain other symptoms that doctors don't realize? And we have plenty of records. This is something which is entirely plausible that we have algorithms that can do this well and we can farm them out. So I think there's a set of algorithms which uh, will really help society if we can ju just farm these out on scale. At some level, I would say the difficulty there isn't a really technological ones. I don't think we're pushing the boundaries on getting better representations to make progress in this area. To make progress in this area, I think it's more uh, addressing a lot of privacy issues, working with doctors, getting this data, and really having very good, robust algorithms which work at scale, which pick up correlations and have confidence on the correlations they pick up. And it's very different from say, how we do a state-of-the-art uh, image recognition, speech recognition, uh, and both sides of these things are real. Now, in terms of getting things to work out of the box, well, if I want to work on video data, which is a question that I'm pretty curious about, it seems entirely plausible that we actually need methods that scale. So yes, there's going to be humans involved in this, but it's a sufficiently hard problem that I feel like we do need some better insights for how to attack this. 
So, right. so to that end, I mean, I, I feel like I have a sense of, of what your sort of methodological tastes are, but can you talk about some applied problems that you're interested in? Yeah, so, uh, so one of my mention, which was, uh, you know, trying to get a handle of deep learning. In a nutshell, my viewpoint is beat them or join them, uh, and I'm pretty open-minded. And so one of them was just this very, uh, I would say, zeroth order question of just looking at fully interconnected neural networks. Uh, another question I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit is, you know, what would we do to, to get at video data? Because we could try convolutions through time, but that really isn't the right structure in video data because, so the way convolutions work is you're trying to exploit the fact that images don't have uh, a notion of an origin because it's really the same object there if you translate everything over. And video data has a different notion of structure in it because it has time and there's jitter in cameras and so on. And the ways in which jitter occurs are very different uh, in the time domain than it is in the space domain. And we clearly want to impose a different structure into this problem than just naively incorporating uh, convolutions the way we do in space. There's certain separability assumptions. That was a wonderful explanation of why convolutions are interesting for, uh, for things like visual object recognition. Um, they're sort of taking advantage of translation invariants that we would expect images to have. But it also seems like video videos have this property over time. Like if I see a, uh, a dog at time one and I see a dog at time five, that I should be invariant to that. That's right. But let's look at the way one actually utilizes these invariances in a more precise sense. So one of the low-level features that is relevant for static images are things like edges. Okay, And certainly edges are going to move through time. And we could think about a notion of an edge through time. Okay, but now let's represent this edge through time. If we want to represent this edge through time in a way that it doesn't move, we have one filter, which is an edge is static without moving through time. But suppose it moves at some velocity. Then we're going to have another filter in which this edge moves at some velocity through time. And if we have a different velocity, we'll have yet another filter. And this is a very wasteful representation because what is really going on is we have a notion of separability, where we have an edge, and it could move through t time essentially at many different velocities, and it could move through time at high frequency velocities because, say, the camera jitters or eye jitters or the saccades in our eyes. And we don't want to wastefully represent uh, uh, some kind of three-dimensional edge. We'd like to understand that we don't really have these unstructured three-dimensional edges. What we have is this two-dimensional uh, edge, and we're going to represent the, the velocity component in a separable way. So we can really reduce the representation size. Uh, and I think this is actually a pretty important uh, constraint to somehow impose. Isn't this something that we could easily you know, say applies to the two-dimensional setting as well? I have a notion of an edge, but it has an orientation. I and mean, we have this wasteful representation in which we wind up with a lot of filters that are the same edge, but at a different angle. Uh, so certainly, if so, so this is a very this is a relevant question. Uh, but in a sense, these orientations really might be very different because when we put these two objects together, we might want to form corners and things like that. Whereas, what this wasteful representation means 
I think it's a very different question when we go to the time domain. What's interesting is there are computational neuroscientists who are actually looking at this question. So in, in a sense, uh, I've been actually pretty excited connecting with the kind of mid-level psychology literature because they're looking at uh, the statistical properties that we might want to capture about our representations. And this is being done in machine learning to some extent, but there's a rich history of looking at the types of representations we capture uh, when we think about things from a neuroscience perspective. And uh, it's actually, you know, it's a difference in viewpoint in machine learning uh, while we'd like to understand the invariances captured in, in our networks, at the end of the day, we do want to get good performance results. So there isn't that much work where we kind of tinker inside our networks to try to figure out what's going on. Now, it is happening a bit. There's been you know, very nice uh, work, recent work by you know, people like Rob Fergus and Matt Zeiler. But compared to the computational neuroscience community, uh, there's actually a lot of work where they look at maybe not as complicated data sets. They look at much simpler data sets, but then they try to understand questions which you're addressing, which is uh, what are the types of invariances captured in, the, in this data when we train them on uh, images which have both spatial structure and time structure, and what are the types of statistical invariant properties we can learn. So so, so it almost sounds like you're, you're sort of like uh, appealing to biological motivation and, and, and thinking about these architectures. So are you sort of um, veering back towards your neuroscience roots? Well, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm directly thinking about uh, this from a biological perspective, but the, the psychologists, I would say the mid-level computational psychologists, are essentially thinking about how the brain processes these things. And they're stuck with the same sort of questions, which is what are the invariances and representations used? And they're exploring some of these questions from, I would say, a more scientific viewpoint because they don't really want to build a system that works. They want to understand the invariances and how that relates to uh, how the brain uh, represents these things. So, you know, there is, I actually, I think, learned quite a bit in discussions with. Uh, Dan Yemens, who is actually a computational neuroscientist, and he was trying to understand uh, you know, the relations between how cells actually fire and properties inside convolutional neural networks, and it was actually very fun talking to him because you know, he was one of the few people uh, that actually learned a convolu convolutional neural network from scratch. And what I mean by scratch is he didn't look at the code by Krzyzewski and build his neural network from there. He actually built the neural network, uh, the convolutional neural network, on his own. And it wasn't a particularly pleasant exp experience. And it wasn't a ple pleasant experience, I think, for most people who try to do these things from scratch. But he really got things to work without looking at this code on his own and got to state of the art. And, and he was coming at it from a very different perspe perspective. But you know, it was a very independent take on what's working. And, his perspective wasn't getting just getting it to work. It was getting it to work and then recording from V4 and try to compare them. So he was asking very different questions. And it was also very interesting that he was looking at moments. So he was actually kind of independently, he was actually showing me plots of the, t the moment structure in the way 
these network was firing, he was actually doing experiments where he would match moments internally to these networks and show how you could learn these things. I don't think this is published, and it was more just things he was doing uh, to understand these networks, but he was actually cracking open these networks, looking at uh, various averages and correlations in the way these things would fire and comparing that to the way uh, the brain fires. So going back to the actual way you know, the brain fires, I'm not in the game of actually recording from cells. And I think ultimately this is why I le left neuroscience because I felt, you know, I wanted, if I wanted to go down this path, I would want it to do science. And that meant I would either have to start a lab of my own or work with real uh, neuroscientists. But uh, there's definitely a connection and the work done there, I think, is actually uh, very enlightening to the when we actually look at kind of sensory sensory coding, like problems in video, vision, auditory perception, and so on. So following up a little bit more there, I mean, you talked about the connection between, um, you know, examining moments and these kind of feed-forward supervised, supervised kind of view. I mean, in this case, it was, you know, thinking about neuroscience. Um, your your work on sort of method of moments types idea type types of ideas has been generally applied for sort of um, important unsupervised learning problems like uh, you know hidden Markov models and mixture models and things like that. Um, and then you know you've also been talking about deep networks and kind of supervised things that we can solve with convex optimization. What's your sort of take on the possibility that unsupervised learning uh, would help us with these kinds of hard supervised tasks? Uh, oh, I mean, you know, my take here is perhaps not novel. Like, you know, Jeff, Jeff's take is very much the same, that ultimately we believe unsupervised learning is the way to go. Uh, it's just we'd really like to get strong empirical evidence that this helps us. Now, I would say in natural language processing, there's more of a blurred distinction between supervised and unsupervised learning. But if we look at computer vision, I would say, you know, here's a very concrete question, which uh, I think a positive result would be extremely influential. Uh, so let's look at ImageNet. ImageNet is a data set of about a million images, a thousand categories, and I don't know, maybe a hundred of them are different species of dogs. Uh, it's kind of the data set which had a remarkable impact on the computer vision community and uh, and on industry as well because uh, the Krasovsky, Hinton, and others result, uh, they got amazing performance on this data set, yet the way they did it was entirely supervised. There's no pre-training. You just start this sucker randomly and run forever. Every morning you wake up, tweak your, uh, tweak your learning rate parameters when you have your coffee, and you start weeks in advance and you'll win the competition. And an extremely uh, a result that I would love to see, and I've been working on this for maybe two years now, is can we build some representation of the data without labels? Okay, so I just look at the data, and maybe it's not even a clever way. I just toss in some kind of garbage features like edges, lots of interactions about, of them, do them at many scales. But when it comes to doing the supervised learning, then I just use a regression or an SVM, some off-the-shelf method that is just bolted on this representation. And can we say uh, do as well as, say, the original Krasovsky result or get state-of-the-art right now? 
is this possible? And this, would, this is a very concrete empirical question, and I think it really would have a major impact scientifically. This might not help us in actually, you know, this might not be a better representation for other problems, but from a scientific viewpoint, this would say a lot because, you know, I think, and, and I will say uh, there's a reason to believe this is actually doable. I've been speaking to uh, both Ben Recht and uh, more of a computer vision and algorithms researcher, Zaid Hachuri, and uh, Zaid basically knows this is possible. I won't uh, quote him, but uh, it, it's possible, and you know, it's not going to come from me, this thing, but I, I'm going to team up with these guys because I think it is doable, uh, and I think this is going to be, you know, I think it's going to be, it should have a huge impact. It might be a little underappreciated by the computer vision community, but I think uh, this would be wonderful if we could really show this. I, I'm cheering for you guys like crazy. I really want to see this succeed because I, th I think we would learn so much if it turns out that that this, uh, you know, that this approach is, even if it's interestingly competitive, much less, less sort of winning. Yeah, I know. I think a lot of people are because um, it, it is a little surprising that, you know, to learn, you know, to learn what a dog is, we need labels, uh, what this thing is, and we're learning some horrible structure, whereas the reason it's a dog is because there's a lot of structure in the unlabeled data. B basically, you know, the, the types of target functions we're learning on images isn't kind of an XOR, some complicated function between a pixel at you know, the 1.5 location, the 6.3 location, another location. It actually has a lot to do with the structure of images uh, and the underlying density themselves. And the structure and the underlying density ultimately feels like should have a major influence on our supervised tasks, yet we haven't really been able to leverage this. Uh, and even all of the pre-training that was very popular in, you know, a few years ago in the deep learning community, to get state-of-the-art now on all challenging data sets, you just start randomly. So, uh, but anyway, like, this is, I think Zaid's uh, comments essentially assures me this is possible, and I'm just waiting for uh, <laughs> uh, the post by, by him. You know, it's certainly an exciting time for machine learning, uh, and, you know, it's, more than just um, exciting in terms of the technological progress, I would say it's also exciting in terms of how we're reshaping the academic community. So this is uh, maybe, you know, you're, you had a lot of questions about, say, statistics and signal processing and how the work is being viewed there. I think what's very exciting about another aspect which is very exciting about machine learning and AI is sort of how we're changing the model in which research is being disseminated. So I think part of uh, this question of how we make scientific progress uh, isn't just one of, of how we set up our experiments. It's also one for how we can repeat our experiments. So I think uh, one of the social norms we're going to have to deal with isn't just a scientific question of what makes an experiment valid. It's how do we verify experiments and how do we deal with uh, both disseminate the information, how do we repeat the experiments, and a lot of, we're definitely setting a lot of social norms for how we release code and are able to both verify experiments and, uh, and things like that. So I think this is another random thought. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think what you're saying is that, that it's, it's an exciting time technically, but also it's, it's at a really great place culturally in many ways. I think, it, I think it's kind of leading the charge 
among many academic disciplines in being introspective about its publication model and about what it means to do repeatable science. That's right. It's, and it, I, I would say it's being introspective partly by uh, not in, in, a, in a way that we're choosing to be introspective. I think it's because we're trying to make progress very quickly, and this is just changing the way in which we do research. And it's very important to disseminate uh, information. And a lot of very interesting research is being done sort of within companies. And this is causing issues when some of this research maybe companies don't want to publish. Uh, how do we deal with cases where, you know, how do we deal with the fact that a lot of data is very costly to to collect? How do we release this publicly? How do we replicate experiments? Uh, and you know, I would you know give this example in speech recognition. Uh, I think it it's an area where scientific pr progress would be easier to make if we had more access to private data sets. And some of these questions about kernel methods, uh, I think we're at where we're at now because it's just very hard to run some of these experiments with uh, proprietary data. And you know, so this is a question about uh, research, but also you know, the publication models are very interesting as well. That you know, my model, to some extent, is post things on archive when it's ready because the world learns about this. and. You know, conferences I go to to disseminate the information and chat about it with colleagues, but this doesn't necessarily jive with, you know, traditional academic models of, uh, of tenure and so on and, and so forth. But these things are ultimately going to have to um, change as well. Definitely. Sean Cockaday of Microsoft Research New England, which is really fascinating to listen to him talk about his work. Yeah, I love his broad perspective on all this stuff. So that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode.